what three things did God promise Abraham? That's right, land, seed, and blessing. I'm telling you, if you understand that covenant in Genesis 12, repeated in Genesis 15, and then referred to throughout the rest of your Bible, you will have a better command of Scripture. I think I said this the first night, and I've heard it said from somebody else, and it is true. If you want to know how well somebody knows their Bible, then ask them to explain to you the significance of the Abrahamic covenant and how that theme can be traced from Genesis throughout Revelation. Because throughout all of Scripture, every book of the Bible is answering the question, will God be faithful to his promise to Abraham? Will God be faithful to his promise to Abraham? With every event, will God be faithful, even in spite man's sin and depravity? Will God now give up, or will he continue to remain faithful to his promises? And so the Abrahamic covenant is foundational to our understanding uh, of the story of the Bible. What are the names of the four patriarchs? That's right. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. This side is winning. I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't know if y'all are distracted by the windows being open over there. All right. But you got four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So that's really the, the how your, the book of Genesis is outlined. Remember, four events, four people. Four events, creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel. Four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. That is the book of Genesis. And what was Jacob's name changed to when he wrestled with God? Israel. Israel. That's exactly right. Look at that. That side over there. Strong comeback. I like that. All right. Who led the Hebrew people out of Egypt? We'll do this as a group. Moses. What were the names of the two spies who demonstrated faith after spying out the promised land? Joshua and Caleb, that's exactly right. Joshua and Caleb, two strong masculine biblical names for you ladies out there. Joshua and Caleb. Who successfully led the Israelites into the promised land? Joshua, that's exactly right. All right. Um, Let's see how my friend did last week. All right. Here we go. The book of Judges is broken up into seven cycles. Name the five parts to each cycle. Think about it. Don't answer out loud. Think about it. I'll give you a second. Judges is a dark period, if you remember. People spiral in their depravity because everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sound relevant to today? And it was a mess. So there's seven cycles, right? The first is what? Sin, slavery. This is a bonus word here. Sounds really official. Supplication. All right, you have to have an S. It's just they cried out to God. They, cried, they prayed. And then God raised up a deliverer, salvation, and then silence. Daniel, get a chance to cover those with you last week? Okay. So what happens is, is the people... They, they turn their backs to God. They, there is no king in the land, and they do what's right in their own eyes. And when they do that, and they disregard God's word, God's law, they do not want to um, follow his ways, it does not turn out well for them. And so God removes his hand of blessing. Because you don't want to live in fellowship with me? Then I'm going to remove my hand of blessing. I'm not going to bless an obstinate people. And you're not living any differently than the people I allowed you to drive out of the promised land. And so what happens is, is that the people lose God's hand of blessing and favor, and they just spiral, they continue to sin, and then, then God's, uh, the people, I'm sorry, the enemies 
okay, of, of God rise up and all of a sudden they enslave God's people. Right, so you have slavery, and then what ends up happening when people are in trouble and they need help? Oh, yeah, now I need God. So then they run to God, and so they cry out to help. There's supplication. And then God, being good and kind and compassionate toward his people, he hears their cries, and he raises up deliverers named judges. All right, and then those judges rise up. They overthrow their oppressors, and then there's a period of silence okay, where there's relative ease and, and uh, prosperity, but, of course, after a while, with too much ease and too much prosperity, the people become complacent, and they do what's right in their own eyes. Right? And then that cycle repeats, and that happens seven times. And the book ends um, with a, uh, just a, a story which summarizes what that time period was like. So who was the first king over Israel? Saul. That's exactly right. That was the people's king. It's because he was tall, good-looking, athletic, and spoke well on cable news networks, Right? And God said, that's not the guy you want. And the people said, no, 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 that's the one we want. God said, let me be your king. Okay, let me be your king, because here's the problem. If you allow someone else to be your king, then they are going to be in it for themselves. And they're going to tax you. They're going to send your men to war. They're going to um, take advantage of, of your daughters. You don't want a king. Because you do, and the people said, no, we want to be a nation like all the other nations of the earth. And that always spells trouble. The people reject God as their king because they want to look like all the other nations of the earth. And so they say, hey, we want a king. God says, choose your king. And they choose Saul. Right? And God's king is the second king. And who's that? David. That's exactly right. But even David... A man after God's own heart is far from the ideal king, the son of David, who is to come, right? All right, so you guys should have gotten through 2 Samuel, I believe, last week. So um, I just want to review real quickly. So this is in everybody's, it's kind of um, familiar to you. Remember that there are 17 historical books in the Old Testament, and then five poetical, and then 17 prophetical. All right, the the ones that are highlighted here, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, those are the ones we're going through and that I'm giving you a keyword and a short outline for. Those are what I call the primary historical books because it moves the chronology along. The ones that are white, they just retell the story and add color to the story that's been told in those 11 primary historical books. Okay, so you have 17 historical books in the Old Testament. Of those 17, you have 11 primary historical books, and we're, we are covering, in these three weeks, we're covering those primary historical books. And then you have the five poetical books, Job through Song of Solomon, and then you'll see the, the role that these guys play tonight, the prophets. They're the last 17 books in the Old Testament. The first five of the prophets are known as the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, only because they're longer. And then the remaining 12, those are known as the minor prophets. They're just shorter. So not one's more important than the other or one's less inspired. They're all inspired and they all have an an incredible message that if you spent time reading and studying them, I know it's the most neglected part of your Bible, but if you read them in context against the backdrop of what we'll talk about tonight, you'll see that they have an amazing message that is certainly applicable even for today. If you were to break up the prophets even more, 
besides just major and minor, you do it based on when, it, when they wrote. Pre-exilic prophets, exilic prophets, post-exilic prophets. So what that means is before the exile, during the exile, and after the exile. The exile is an event we're going to study tonight where God's people continue to stiffen their neck. God sends prophets pre-exile, pre-exilic prophets, to warn them to return, turn, return to um, the law. Listen to me. My way is the best way. But the people disregard God. And he goes, if you keep doing that, I'm going to remove my hand of favor. You're no longer distinguished among the nations. Okay? And you are to be to me a kingdom of priests. Exodus 19.6 is just a verse you should have memorized, highlight, circle. And it's a thematic throughout this whole um, study. It's there that God says in Exodus 19.6, his intention for the nation of Israel is they are to be a kingdom of of priests, a nation set apart so that all the other nations of the earth will look at them and say, what is so different about you? You continue to prosper. Your army is small. Your diet is different. The way you marry, the way you worship, the way you eat, your whole lifestyle, the way you do business, everything is different about you. And you were blessed amongst all the other nations of the earth. And their response was to be, it is not because of our own intellect or our hard work or our constitution right? Or how big and strong we are. We serve the one true God. And the nation of Israel was in the promised land set apart to live under God's law. And God's way is the best way. And he said, if you live according to this way, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to set you apart amongst all the other nations of the earth, which were all polytheistic. They had a God of the stars, moon, sun, ocean, okay? But Yahweh said, hey, I'm one God. I'm one God, and those other nations were to come look at them, and they were to be an intercessor and tell them about their God. And that's, that was God's kingdom program for bringing people into a relationship to himself. But they continued to stiffen their neck, and they didn't live that way. They lived according to what they thought was right. They disregarded God's law. So he sent those prophets and said, hey, come on, come on. Don't live this way. If you do, God's going gonna to remove his hand of favor. Those are the pre-exilic prophets. Sure enough, as we'll see tonight, just as God promised and as the prophets foretold, the enemies of Israel will overthrow Israel and take them captive. Okay? So, um, and then you'll have these exilic prophets, which will remind them of the promises of God, and then post-exilic prophets. All right? All right, so let's go ahead and stand up. You guys look tired. It's been a long work day. Come on, come on, come on. If you don't participate, right, then we're going to charge you double. All right, here we go. So you've got 10 periods. Of those 17 historical books, the 11 tell the story, right? And if you were to take the 11 and just line them up, you could actually break up that story into these periods, these 10 periods. So each one of them has a hand motion, all right? You guys know it now. Creation, right? God's made, cre- created the heavens and the earth. Patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. This is the patriarchs. So creation, patriarchs, Exodus. What's next? That's right. This is where nobody participates. You've got to go all the way around, people. Come on. Come on. Wandering. Did everybody do it over there? Come on. You learned a trick? Oh, yeah. See? No, no, no. Did Daniel do that to y'all? Oh. Oh, that's not good. That's not good. Everybody's got to participate. Creation, patriarchs. Exodus, wandering, and then conquest. All right, this is when Joshua goes into the promised land. Then you have judges, and then kingdom, 
exile, hands are behind your back, you're arrested, okay? You're no longer, you no longer have freedom, all right? And then return, which is a foreshadow, you're going to learn tonight what happens, and then silence, which is a story, uh, what happens between the Old Testament and the New Testament. All right, well done. Go ahead and have a seat. Just a quick review right there. It's just good, gang, to go over this over and over and over again. It's like watching a movie, Okay, some of those movies you've seen that you can just quote, you get together with some of your friends, and you just say a line, everybody goes, oh yeah, and they can just pick it up, right? You've been there before, and that's the way you want to see the story of the Bible, so that I can say, First Kings, you go division. I say, Second Samuel, and then you're going to say David. If I say Exodus, you're going to say escape. If I say Nehemiah, you're going to say walls. And all you're doing is just going fast forward, rewind, fast forward, rewind, fast forward, rewind. And that's when you start to really own the Bible and the story of the Bible because you have a grasp of what's, what is, precedes each story and what follows each story. Okay? But if you don't have the framework, if you don't have the big major divisions like I just described in those 10 periods, if you don't have the key words and then those outlines, it, it, it becomes really choppy. Right? It's, um, and so what I want you to do is think about it like you're building a framework of a home. Okay? I remember um, very well, I grew up in the same house since I was uh, from when I was born until I was 18, and then my parents moved out of the house after I graduated from high school. But so for 18 years, I, w- I lived in the same house. And I can close my eyes, and I'm telling you to this day, I can walk you through rooms. And not only walk you through the rooms, but I could tell you what was on the walls. I could tell you where furniture was. I remember the colors. I remember the smells. I mean, I can just walk you, I could be blindfolded and go to that house today and walk you through uh, where everything was. And so what I want you to be able to do is you think about the story of the Bible like the house you grew up in, right? And you just be able to sit there and go, hey, when you're going to walk in, you got to know that the first thing you're going to encounter is this incredible story about four events and four people. And then after Joseph's life, God moves his people down to Egypt. The people cry out, and God raises up a deliverer. He hears their cries in Exodus 6. And that deliverer's name is Moses, and he redeems the people, then reveals God's law to them. And redemption, revelation, that's Exodus. And so what you're doing is you're just thinking big pictures, and then you can start to narrow in on some of those stories. And that's kind of like, it's not just the kitchens over here and the dens back there, but you can go, hey, there was a table right here. And on that table was this lamp. And that lamp was this copper lamp, right? And what you're doing right there is you're saying, okay, Abraham was married to Sarah. And Sarah laughed when God promised that he was going to allow her, after years of being barren, allow her to have a child. She laughed and didn't believe it. And so what she did is she tried to help God out. And so she said, hey, here's my maid, Hagar, and Abraham, why don't you help God and sleep with Hagar? And Abraham said, hey, that's a good idea because you know what? I'm old, you're old, we've never been able to have kids, this must be the way. Well, sure enough, Hagar and Abraham had a child, and his name was Ishmael. And the rivalry between Ishmael and Abraham's lack of faith and Sarah's lack of faith then And Isaac, which was the child of promise, is what to this day is what continues to perpetuate the conflict in the Middle East. To this day. 
And so, man, now we're starting to understand the story, and you just get more and more. And then you realize that Hagar is kicked out by Sarah and Ishmael, and then God comes and speaks to them and comforts her. And I mean, and now you're, I'm, I'm telling you that just this, this basic story, this, you know, but much more of the details. And then you, so you want to kind of walk through the books of the Bible and have the big picture in view, but you want to be able to place all the, the, the details as you go along. Does that make sense? All right, so keep reviewing, keep reviewing the 10 periods. You want to have those cold. Know the, the books of the Bible. So when I say Genesis, you think, you think um, beginnings, and you think four events, four people. All right, and so, um, and those are just kind of placeholders, right? Those are placeholders. And when you're thinking about Abraham, ask yourself, okay, Abraham's promised three things. Where is that found? It's found in Genesis 12. It's found in Genesis 15, repeated there. The, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. Those three things were land, seed, and blessing, okay? And so you're just thinking through each, all, each of the narratives. Abraham offers, offers up Isaac, okay? He was the child of promise. Isaac has... Um, Jacob. Jacob, he wrestles with God. His name's changed to Israel. He has 12 sons. That's where the 12 tribes of Israel come from. So you just want to keep kind of walking yourself through um, each of these books. All right. So I mentioned Exodus. The key word there is escape. If you remember in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, it says, there arose a Pharaoh who no longer remembered Joseph. And the people of God multiplied just like God said they would. They multiplied, 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 and we're starting to become like all the stars in the heaven, all the sand on the seashore. You remember what God said to Abraham? He said, hey, look up, Abraham. You see all those stars? You're going to have so many descendants. The sand on the ground, it's going to be like your kids. This is an old man and a barren woman. Okay, well, just as God said, the people of God, the, Abraham's descendants were multiplying and the Pharaoh felt threatened. And there was no longer the favoritism of remembering who Joseph was. Joseph was long gone. Remember Joseph was, he, you remember his story, right? How God raised him up to a place of prominence. And God used that then when there was a famine in the promised land such that Jacob and his family could come and they could prosper under Joseph. Well, now in Exodus chapter one, that Joseph's gone. And God's people have multiplied and Pharaoh's going, we've got a problem because the Jewish people could just overthrow us. So our solution is we will enslave them. Everybody remember this, right? So they enslave them and God calls Moses through a burning bush. He hears the people's cry and he says, Moses, you're going to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let me go. Let my people go. Pharaoh does. He says, no way. I'm not going to let him go. That's my labor. Okay. That's not going to be politically um, expedient. Why would I want to let them go? Go back and, you know, he, he doubles their work but with fewer resources to do it. The people are crying out, Moses, what in the world have you done? And then this is where you see the series of the ten plagues. And each plague, gang, is an indictment on all of the Egyptian gods who are polytheistic. Okay? So if there's a god of the Nile, watch what Yahweh can do. The god of the Nile, boom, the Nile turns to blood. There's the God of the sun, boom, there's darkness. See, Pharaoh, you think you're God, there's multiple gods. My God, Yahweh, I am, that God, he's sovereign over everything. He's the creator. Eventually, he relents, okay, and you have the Passover. 
And so he lets the people go, and then you have the Red Sea, right? And now you've got God's people who have been redeemed. They're on the run, and where are they headed but to the land promised to Abraham? They're going to the promised land, okay? The land promised in the Abrahamic covenant. And so they're on the way to the promised land, and God leads them by a pillar of fire by day and a pillar of fire, uh, cloud by day and fire by night. And he doesn't just lead them, though. Now he's going to reveal his law because he wants the people to be a kingdom of priests. He wants them to be set apart. So he's going to inform their faith. He's going to teach them. And he's going to teach them more about himself. And so the law is both regulatory in that it teaches them how to live, and it's revelatory in that it teaches them about the character of God, that God is holy, that he's good, that he's just, that he's one God. Okay? And then God reveals to Moses that he's to set up a tabernacle. And that tabernacle is going to be the place of worship by which all the 12 tribes of Israel will center around. And so right there, God, who is the consummate teacher, always teaching, is showing them that he is to be the center of their lives. So the camp, when the cloud stops, when the, when the fire stops, it stops right there, and the people camp around it. And the tabernacle is set up. And that's where God is, and they offer their their sacrifices there. And when the cloud starts to move, the fire starts to move, they pack up and they follow it. And God leads them. All right? And the cloud provides marvelous shade through the desert. The people cry out because they're hungry. And so what does God do? He provides manna. But what's he always wanted to teach? Hebrews eleven six that without faith, it's impossible to please God. He wants them to be dependent upon him. And so he says, hey, listen, I'm going to provide all the manna you need every single day, every day. So you could take one day's portion of food and eat it, and you will have enough. You'll always have enough, but don't take more than one day. And what was he trying to teach him but dependence upon him? And it was only on the, the day before the Sabbath they could take two days' worth because on the Sabbath they were to rest, just rest, reflect on the goodness of God. And if you took more than one day's provision, it would rot. And so what did the people do? They forgot the promises. Or they forgot the, the, what God had done for them in the past. And they started to complain. And they actually said it would have been better for us never to have left, left Egypt than to wander in this wilderness. They turned against Moses. They grumbled. They complained. They turned against God. They rejected his law. Okay? And so... If you're Moses and you're reading, or if you've been reading with this through the journey, and you remember the story about Moses, that was one leadership challenge. Leading a people who are continuing stiff in their neck, and God miraculously provides. And then the people become grateful and thankful, but then they grow content and complacent, and and they start to reject God again. And so that leads us to the book of Numbers. Numbers is where the people finally get, the Exodus generation finally gets to the promised land. And they're allowed to send in 12 spies. One spy from every tribe. And why would God allow them to send in spies to the promised land, do you think? Anybody got a guess? What's that? Test their faith. Okay, that's, that's definitely... A possibility? 
protection, okay, to go in and um, survey it so they, they know how they're going to attack the promised land. Because here's another thing that, which I haven't told you. People, this is just a, there's a, um, I won't get too long into this, but you have to know this. In Genesis 15, God promises Abraham this, this land, but he says you cannot have it now because the time of the Amorite has not yet arrived. And what God is communicating is, is that every day that passes until the Israelites come to this land is a day in which he is giving people a chance to repent. Judgment is certainly coming. But just like today, 2 Peter 3.9 says that God is faithful. He's, slow about, he's not slow about his promise, right? He wants everybody to come to know him. Every day that passes is not God... Um, it's not that he is aloof or he's indifferent. Every day that passes is another opportunity for someone to trust Christ. And so he delays his judgment. So when Moses and the Israelites get to the edge of the promised land and they send in spies, and now they're about to go in and destroy the inhabitants, God is going to use his people as the instrument of judgment against a wicked people in the land who are practicing child sacrifice, who are practicing sorcery and all sorts of wickedness. And God's going, done, I'm driving them out. And and Israel, I'm going to use you. But remember, Israel, that when you go into that promised land, you're not to adopt the customs of those people who are in there. Drive them out. Don't intermarry. Don't make alliances. Because what's going to end up happening is, is you will then compromise and no longer follow me. You'll adopt their practices. Okay, everybody with me? That's where we're getting. You know that when we get to Judges, because that's exactly what happens. All right, so stick with me. Now we're in numbers. They send in 12 spies. Ten come out and say, oh man, there's giants in the land. Two say, Joshua and Caleb say, it's okay. Yes, it's well fortified. Yes, there's people in the land that are much bigger than us. We look like you know, little grasshoppers in their sight. But God is with us. Don't you remember what he did in the Exodus? Don't you remember how he delivered us through the wilderness? We're good. But the people listen to the majority. There's a lesson right there. And they don't listen to the two men who are offering what is true. The reason why I think God sent the spies into the promised land is because he wanted them to see that the land was exactly as he promised. It was a land flowing with milk and honey, and it was worth fighting for. It was like God was saying, hey, we've wandered all this way. Don't you want to see? Don't you want to go in and see it? And they were supposed to come out and go, it's exactly what God said. He's going to give this to us. But instead, the people lacked faith. And you've got to understand, this is the Exodus generation, gang. This is the generation that witnessed all the plagues. This is the generation that watched the Red Sea open. This is the generation that was provided for in the wilderness. This is the generation who was given manna every day. A pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. But despite all that, they lacked faith. And they said, well, that's true. God did that in the past, but maybe he won't come through now. There's a lesson for us there. OK? 
okay, is how often it is that we go, yeah, yeah, God helped me back then, but this seems, this seems insurmountable. And God's going, hold on, look at my track record. Look at my track record. Every time he talks through the Old Testament saying, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, every time he says that, what is he saying? I'm a God with a resume. And I am able to fulfill my promises. And so what ends up happening is, is you have in, the, in Numbers, you have this tragic transition where the people rebel, and God raises up a new generation. And he says, hey, the Exodus generation, you've come a long way, but you've rebelled, and now you have lost the opportunity and the privilege to experience my blessing in the promised land. Whew. However, because Joshua and Caleb, they believed me, they will go in, and your children will go in. Everybody under the age of 20. But the excess generation, you're going to wander. You're going to wander one year for every day that you spied out the land. And so that's why we do this silly thing, right? The people wander. And what is God doing? He's just, it's, it's divine judgment. And they wander and they complain. They wander and they complain. And then eventually, God brings, raises up Joshua. And we finally have a leader who's going to lead the people into the promised land. And Joshua's key word is success. And Joshua 1.8, maybe a verse you memorized in uh, Equip Disciple, right? Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. And what Joshua say right here is he's saying, hey, listen, gang. Don't make the mistakes that our fathers made. Listen to God's word. Hold on to his word. It's true. It's right. We're to be different than all the other nations of the earth who just consult in their false gods and idols. We serve the one true God. And because of his leadership and the people's submission to his leadership, there's great success. And it's literally divide and conquer. And they go right into Jericho, which is in the heart of the promised land. And they divide and conquer the land. So you've got conquest and settlement. And you know how probably a little bit of the story of of Jericho, right? And so you covered that last week. So you have conquest and settlement. They're to drive out the inhabitants of the land. The book ends with Joshua saying, choose today whom you're going to serve. But as for me and my house, I'm going to serve the Lord. So some of you might even have that little placard in your house, but that's where that fits is you've got Joshua, one man who's standing up amongst um, you know, hundreds of people, and he is, he is a leader, he is God's man, and he is saying, hey, I don't care what the vote is. You count me in for following God. That's where I'm going. And he draws a line in the sand. Well, after he dies, the people vote. And unfortunately, they didn't choose well. And we had, that's where we have the book of Judges, the seven cycles of sin, where you had Joshua, where there was strength and leadership. Now, instead of driving the inhabitants out of the land, they intermarry, they make compromises, they make treaties, and they become like the inhabitants. And God's people are no longer living according to the law. They're living in a way which is contrary to God's will. And that's when you see it just spiraling out of control. And the common refrain throughout the book of Judges is, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Gang, that's anarchy. Okay? Today we call it relativism. 
right? And so, um, and it says there was no king in the land. And so everyone did what was right in his, in his own eyes. So judges is failure. Some of you ladies, you study the book of Ruth. I'm not going to spend much time on Ruth. I don't know if uh, Daniel covered Ruth. But if Joshua is that dark cloud, right, that hard cement, Ruth is the flower that's coming up from the concrete that grows up in, amongst the, the death, the decay, the hardness of heart. Ruth is the flower. And Ruth answers the question, in the midst of all this depravity, will God remain faithful to his promises to Abraham? Or is he going to say, hey, you know what? That's enough. I'm done. I'm no longer going to bless these people. I'm going to forget my promises to Abraham, and they'll just deal with it. Ruth is the answer that, yes, God remains true to his promises. Even when man, as Paul says, even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. And so God uses a Moabite woman, a foreign woman named Ruth. And because of her loyalty and her devotion, she ends up marrying a man named Boaz. And it's through Ruth that Jesus will be born. And she is in the genealogy of Jesus. So God has always had a heart, right, for all the nations, It's never been just about one nation. It's about using one nation to reach all the nations. Missions didn't just start in Matthew 28. Missions has always been a part of God's plan to reach all the nations. And Ruth is another reminder of that. Everybody with me still? All right. So now we're to 1 Samuel. rather, And here God establishes the monarchy. Samuel is the first or last judge and one of the first prophets. He anoints Saul, who becomes the first king. He becomes enraged and jealous of David. Saul's son is Jonathan. Jonathan becomes close to David. You read about that. Saul becomes mad because David is the one who kills Goliath. And all the women folks say, hey, Saul's killed his thousands, but David's killed his tens of thousands. And he hates that. He can't stand to, sh- to share the spotlight. And he hates that all the opinion polls about David are so high. That shepherd boy, who is that kid? I'm the king. And so he becomes enraged and bitter and jealous. And instead of attentive to God's will, he becomes spiteful. And he wants David dead. That's what happens. I know you covered that last week. Saul eventually dies, terrible death. David then comes into power, and you have David's triumphs in 2 Samuel, both politically and spiritually. But even David, who the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart, even David makes a tragic choice. When it was time for the kings to go out to war, David chooses to remain at home. And it's there that he commits adultery with Bathsheba. Did Daniel go over all this with you, this story? It's a tragic story. Because what had God just promised David in 2 Samuel 7? Do you remember? Anybody know? It's another covenant. It's called the Davidic covenant. So, 
This is really important. So if you've lost you, kind of come back, all right, and you can go back to sleep. So you've got Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 and 15. The Davidic covenant is just as important in 2 Samuel 7. It's in 2 Samuel 7 that God is going to expand upon his covenant to Abraham, and he's going to provide more specificity. And he's going to say, hey, this line of promise is going to go through you, David. And David, you will always have the right to rule. And so he promises a throne, a house, a throne, and a kingdom. And so I hope Daniel showed this to you last week. It's probably a verse you just missed every Christmas. But what does the angel announce to Mary? That God is going to fulfill his promise to David. Okay, y'all saw, I mean, okay, focus. You saw Charlie Brown's Christmas. And Charlie Brown gets up there and he says, can anybody tell me the meaning of Christmas? And Linus walks out with his little blanket. And he goes, I can, Charlie Brown. And he stands up and he goes, lights, please. And he tells the story of Luke 2. Luke 2 is Christmas. And it's the story of the angel who comes and says, Hey, Mary, good news. Behold, a child has been born in Bethlehem. And he quotes 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant. Matthew does the same thing. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, when we look at all those names, who is Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David? It is a bold declaration that God is faithful to his covenant promises. And so the story with David is so heartbreaking because God has said to David, David, I am, I am giving you such incredible privilege, so incredible blessing. You're gonna, you, are, you are my man. And yet even the best of leaders, even the best of kings fall short of the glory of God. And so our whole time, everything is anticipating, is there ever going to be a king who is good and perfect and wise and just? And the answer is yes, but it's just not David. It's just not David. But David is a type of what is to come because of what's to promise to him. But because of his sin, he covers it up in shame. And do you remember the name of the man who comes and rebukes him? Nathan. Nathan tells this little story, right, about a little ewe lamb and this poor man who had this little lamb. And there was a rich man who had everything he wanted. He was going to throw a party for his buddies. And instead of using one of his lambs, he went he took the poor man's lamb and he sliced its throat and he used that to feed his friends. And David said, that man deserves to die. And Nathan said, you are that man. Now, I don't know about you, but that is, I cannot imagine what it would have been like to have been in that room. I don't, I don't just, I don't read scripture gang in black and white. I read it in color. And I pictured Nathan grabbing David, David, grabbing the king and looking at him going, you are that man. And David, being after, a man after God's own heart, you've read the Psalms. It's here we read these incredible Psalms of David of contrition where he is broken broken 
But because of his failure and because of his sin, trouble reigns in his house from this point on. And so you have David's troubles. And his own son, Absalom, rises up and starts a civil war. And he says, if only I were king. If only I were king, not my dad. He's an old man. If only I were king, everything would be good. And now David's house is divided. So that's a review up until now. Everybody with me? All right. One more time. Stand up. Come on. You ready? Creation, patriarchs, exodus, wandering, conquest, judges, kingdom. That's where we are right now. Exile, return, silence. All right, so we're doing kingdom, exile, return, and silence tonight. All right, it's 7.50. You don't think we can do it? Oh, yes, we can. Here we go. So first kings... First Kings, you have the, the uh, key word is division. Okay, so um, what ends up happening here is Saul dies, David becomes king. David dies, and his son Solomon becomes king. Solomon prays to God not for wealth, not for women, not for power. He prays for wisdom. And God says, I'm so honored by your prayer that I am going to give you the most, you're going to have greater wisdom than anyone who will ever live. And I'm going to allow you to have incredible earthly treasures as well. And it's Solomon who's going to build the temple. Okay? Now, now we've gone from a tabernacle in the wilderness. David is the one who wants to build the temple. I know that Daniel shared it with you. Okay, David wants to build it, but he can't because he's a man of bloodshed. And God goes, hey, you can't build it. I'm going to build a house for you, but your son's going to build it. Okay, and so Solomon is given all this wisdom, and he builds this permanent structure known as the temple, and that is going to be the centerpiece of where worship is. All right, so you've got this united kingdom, the 12 tribes of Israel. But after Solomon builds the temple, um, and the problem is, in, despite all of his wisdom, he begins to multiply his wives and his heart as he doesn't finish strong. Okay, his heart grows cold. And after he dies... Um, there are two men, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, who rise up. Rehoboam is Solomon's son. And Rehoboam um, is young and he's foolish. And Solomon's advisors come to him and they say, hey, listen, you know, your dad, he, I mean, we've gone through a high period of taxation here. And it's been, it's been a, you know, a little rough these past few years. It would be good of you if you just kind of tap the brakes. You're young, right? Don't be demanding. Don't ask a lot of the people. Let's just, let's just slow down. Rehoboam doesn't like that. He goes to his old high school buddies, and he says, hey, what do you think I should do? And they say, you tell him, tell all the people, you tell them who's in charge. You're young. You've got to exert your authority. And so he does that. He listens to his old high school cronies rather than listening to the old wise men. 
right? Because he wants to be somebody. He's got young man's disease. So he exerts his position of influence. And what it does is it destroys the kingdom and it splits it in two. Into the north, into the south. So this kingdom that was once united under Saul, David, Solomon, now becomes divided. And you've got the northern kingdom. Everybody focus, focus, focus. The northern kingdom retains the name Israel. The southern kingdom takes on the name of the largest tribe, Judah. So one kingdom, known as Israel, divides into the northern kingdom is Israel, the southern kingdom is called Judah. Now, um, Israel will end up, well, let me, let me go through this. First Kings, we don't know who wrote it, okay? And its purpose is to record the history of Israel from Solomon to the divided kingdom, which I just told you that story, to demonstrate the folly of rebelling against the Lord. Some of the themes of this book are wisdom and folly, the temple, worship, and kingship. You see Solomon's wealth and his wisdom in this book. You see the building of the temple. You see where the kingdom divides. This is where Elijah's ministry is. Okay? You remember Elijah and Elisha, some of you? The prophet Elijah? This is where he has that great confrontation um, with the prophets of Baal. Baal is a Canaanite uh, fertility god. Okay? And they had Asheroth poles. Okay, and this is, y'all are going to think I'm making this up. I'm not, I'm not trying to be perverted or sick, okay? But the way in order to, for the land to grow, all you think about when you're in this agrarian society is kids and crops, because you've got to survive. So what they want to do in this polytheistic culture is they're going to worship this, this god, Baal, this fertility god, okay? And Baal and Moloch, and they set up this, these Asheroth poles, and, this, and basically... Through their sex and through Baal's sex, rain will fertilize and water the earth. Okay? It's just wickedness. It's just, it's just man-made wickedness. Okay? And, and Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal. And you know the story. It's just one of the best stories in all of the Bible. It's one of my favorites. He, 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 gets, he comes and he, he calls all the prophets of Baal together and he goes, hey, let's figure out who the one true God is. And he calls all of the Israelites together and he goes, hey, let's just find out right now. And he's one man. Okay? And so the, over 400 prophets of Baal show up. And he goes, here's what we're going to do. You make an altar over here. I'll make an altar over here. You call on your God from heaven. I'll call on my God. And whoever's God shows up and lights this baby with fire, that's going to be the one true God. So the prophets of Baal are like, hey, that's easy. So they cut themselves because that's part of their worship to manipulate God. Okay, they're crying out to God. They're yelling. And, and you know, oh, this is kind of biblical trash talk. This is when Elijah kind of leans in and goes, hey, you know, it's, it's been a while. Like, nothing's happening. You know, maybe your God's going to the bathroom. Scream louder. Okay, this is true. This is biblical smack talk right? Scream louder. Wake him up. Maybe your God's asleep. And so, obviously, there is no God of Baal, okay? It's all false, falsehood and idolatry. And so, now it's Elijah's turn. And he says, hey, I'll tell you what. 
why don't you take buckets of water and just dig a moat around my altar and just fill it with water so there's no mistaking what's about to happen. And then, boom, he calls on Yahweh's name, and fire comes down from heaven, right? And then Elijah says, it's time to destroy the wicked prophets of Baal, and it's on, okay? Well, this is what you're dealing with. You've got righteous prophets of God, and you've got a people who are swayed by all this crazy foolishness and the, the worship of Baal, right? So if you're familiar with that story, um, that's where it fits. If you don't know the story, I'd encourage it. Look it up. There's, um, but here's where this is really a difficult book to read. First and Second Kings is really under, is difficult to read. It's difficult to read because the narrative goes back and forth between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So when you're reading along, it, it's, it doesn't feel chronological. You're going to read it and you're going to go, what in the world? And so because you'll read about the northern kingdom and then he'll jump to the south and then he'll talk again about the south and then he'll go to the northern kingdom and you can't make rhyme or reason of it. But here's what you need to know. In the north... There are 19 kings, and zero are righteous. In the south, there'll be 20 kings. In Judah, there'll be 20, and eight are righteous. Okay? Everybody understand this. In the north, there are 19 kings, and it says they followed in the sins of Jeroboam. 19 kings. If you ever want to study legacy... If you don't think one man can have an influence on an entire nation, you're crazy. Go look at the legacy and the influence of one man, Jeroboam, and how he led his country and all the people okay, to destruction. One man. But in the south, the prophets started to show up. These pre-exilic prophets that we just talked about. Remember the 17 prophets? Those pre-exilic prophets, they show up and they go, hey guys, they're, they're living during the time of Elijah as well, okay? But Elijah didn't write a book, so that's why you don't see his name down there. But you got to imagine these pre-exilic prophets, they're ministering during the same time and they're warning the people, if you don't repent, if you don't come back to God, it is going to be trouble. Well, some of the kings listen to the prophets. In the south, there's eight of them. They actually stop and they go, hey, this is a problem. We've forsaken God. All right? And so you have good kings like good King Josiah and Hezekiah. You've got to read some of their stories. It's, it's, it is, I mean, we don't have time tonight, but they're, they're incredible stories of what, how these men stand up and they turn the tide. And because of that, their nation is blessed. And they listen to the rebuke, and they're humble, and they love their God, and God blesses them. And because of that, he delays judgment on Judah. Okay? But in the north, the 19 kings, none are righteous. And so judgment is coming, and they continue to stiffen their neck, and they don't worship the Lord. Everybody follow me still? All right? Now, this, this narrative switches back and forth between 1st and 2nd Kings. Know this. 1st and 2nd Kings is just divided because once you had one long scroll, and you can't have that long of a scroll. It's all one book. We've divided it. Okay, so 2nd Kings just picks up all the narrative. But um, what you want to do is, is you want to get any good Bible, uh, study Bible, or any good commentary, 
is going to have in there the, a, a chart with all of the kings. So in my Bible, I highlight all the northern kings in one color and all the southern kings in another color. And then I got a highlighter where it says, and this king was good. And there's only eight times that happens. And so now when I go read in 1st and 2nd Kings, as I read along, I'm like, okay, I'm in the north, now I'm in the south, north, south, north, south, and I got it. I don't have to remember all those names, okay? Because some people only have like two sentences, and that's every, that summarizes everything. They were wicked. That's their name, and they'll never be, you know, regarded as having done anything. And you're kind of like, okay, next, all right? That, that truly is what happens for many of them, all right? Um, so... First Kings, the key word is division, and that is because after Solomon dies, the kingdom splits in two. Okay? Um, some of the key words you'll see is did what was evil, high places, and David. High places is the reference to the idolatry that I was talking to you about, where they would set up these high places and worship Baal. All right? Second Kings the key word is exile. So you have Israel in the north, Judah in the south, 19 kings in the north, none are righteous. So God raises up a country called Assyria. Okay, And Assyria um, destroys Israel. The surviving kingdom, Judah, they go on another 100-plus years, 130 years of existence because of the faithfulness of the eight righteous kings. So when Assyria overthrows Israel, God preserves supernaturally. It's a great story, but you just got to read it, right? Preserves Judah. Not because they're stronger, not because they're better, not because they're smarter, or they have, you know, bigger nukes. Right? God preserves them simply because of the righteousness and the repentance of the people. So he withholds his judgment. But Assyria is taken, uh, takes over Israel. And you talk about the ISIS of the day. These are wicked people. They, they didn't just take you over. They literally filleted you. Okay? They were known for their torture. There's pictures you can see. I mean, they, there's... They, they loved, they were, they were terrorists, and they loved to show how they tortured their enemy. And so Judah survives longer. Um, but this is the period known as the exile. Again, we don't know who wrote this, maybe Jeremiah or a group of prophets, we don't know. But it's to record the pivotal elements in the kings of Israel and Judah and show what led to their eventual downfall. You have themes of, of the kings and idolatry and judgment, prophecy or warnings, and then, and then exile. You have um, the transition from Elijah to Elisha in this, um, in this book. You have the righteous kings in the south, Hezekiah and Josiah. And then, oh, I didn't mention Ahab and Jezebel. I mean, the, this, they are the two. Ahab is the wicked. He's like the, the pinnacle of the most wicked kings in the north. Okay? And his wife, Jezebel. Never name your kid Jezebel. All right? If you're named Jezebel, your mom and dad didn't like you. Okay, so fall of Israel and Judah is in this book. And it records the final 
two of three Old Testament resurrections. You, you've got to recognize Elisha and Elijah are doing incredible things. Now, let me tell you something. Um, people ask, um, okay, I'm going to go for it. Okay, total rabbit trail. Miracles in the Bible, okay? Miracles, this is a time of extraordinary miracles. Can you think, when was the time before that of extraordinary miracles? What's that? Okay, Exodus. Who was the leader? Mm-hmm. All right, so that's the time in which God displays his miracles through a particular person. All right, and what does Moses do? But he ends up writing the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Then you have the time of the prophets. Okay? And you have Elijah and Elisha and all these prophets, and they do great miracles, and then you have the writing of the prophets. When do you see the next period of great miracles displayed? Jesus and the apostles, and you have the writing of the New Testament. So you can look at Scripture, and you can see that God uses miracles to authenticate both his message and his messenger. He doesn't use miracles just so that people can go, whoa, what a neat show. He is using miracles. If you remember, like when, he, when Moses said, well, hey, how's anybody ever going to believe that you're really the one who sent me? And he goes, hey, Mo, why don't you throw your staff down and watch what happens? And it turns into a what? A snake. And he goes, hey, pick that thing up. And he picks it up and it turns into a rod. And he goes, why don't you take your hand and put it in there in your robe? And you pull it out. It's leprous as snow. Put it back in. And now it's healed. Look, I'm going to use you and you're going to do great things. And that's going to be proof to everybody that I'm the one who sent you. And you're going to have power over all these gods of Egypt. And that's going to be proof. And so your miracles are going to authenticate the message and the messenger. But even Jesus said, hey, an evil and adulterous generation looks for a sign. And you have the hardness of man's heart in the time of Jesus when he's working miracles. And what do they do? They scoff and they attribute it to, G- to, uh, to Satan. The, the, the miracles are not... People say all the time, man, if I could just see a miracle, forget it. Forget it. If you could just see a miracle, guess what? You, it, you would not necessarily come to believe that God is, exists because I've got history of generations of people who saw miracles and they figured out a way to discount it and reject God. So this is a time period where God is allowing his prophets, namely Elijah and Elisha, to do some crazy things. Okay? Um, that should be Christ in 2 Kings. Um, key chapters, chapter 17, 25, I'll let you look at all this. Um, but this, this is where I just got to show you where um, I just got to show you some, some passages that are worth noting in 2 Kings 17. Okay, so here it says, The king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria. Now, Samaria is the capital in Israel. Don't think the region in the New Testament of the Samaritans. Okay, this is a city, Samaria. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. Why Why did God allow the Assyrians to come and overthrow them? Because they forgot their God and walked in the customs of what? The other nations. 
exactly what God told them not to do. Whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced and the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree and they were made offerings on all the high places as what? As the people, or as the nations did, whom the Lord carried away from before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger, and they served idols, which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways, keep my commandments and my statutes, in accordance with the law that I commanded your fathers, and that I sent to you by my servant the prophets. The sons of Israel walked in the sins of who? Jeroboam, there's that name, the first king in the north, which he did. And they did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel from his sight as he spoke through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. See, when you read the prophets, you think, prophets, that's gloom and doom and bad. No, no, no. The prophets gave a message of hope. And called people to repentance. They were the messengers of God calling them back to repentance. But in wrath, God always remembers mercy, which is the theme of the prophets. And that's why you see, even in God's judgment, he says, but I will be faithful to my promise to Abraham. And there will be a day that my son, the son of Abraham, is going to reign and rule over Israel and take the throne of David, just like I promised. Gang, in just a few weeks, you're going you're gonna to finish this class, and you're going to have to answer the question, how does God fulfill his promise to Abraham? And Bobby Cried is going to get up here, and he's going to walk you through the book of Revelation, and he's going to show you how what I'm talking about right now is tied to Revelation and how we understand end-time events. People come to me all the time. Hey, explain to me the book of Revelation. I don't understand Revelation. Great. Do you understand the Abrahamic covenant? No, I don't. Okay, well, I can't explain to you Revelation. Because okay, you've got to go all the way back. Revelation is the culmination of all of God's promises and how those promises are fulfilled. From Abraham through the prophets, through Jesus to today. And the answer is, God has yet to do all that he said he would do for Abraham. There's a future. There's a hope. The prophets talk about it. It's called the Millennial Kingdom, and we'll get to that. All right, and the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight. That's the southern kingdom. As I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, which Jerusalem was the, was the capital, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. So the northern kingdom, again, um, this is important. Um, I want you to see this. When you read the... Um, when you read the prophets, you'll see sometimes the northern kingdom is referred to as Israel and also Ephraim, right? And that's because it's the larger tribe. Um, again, there's 19 kings in the north. None are righteous. consisted of 10 tribes. The capital is Samaria. It's captured by the Assyrians. And there's no return from captivity. In the south, however, it's referred to as Judah. There's 20 kings. Eight are righteous. All right, the kingdom is, uh, the capital is Jerusalem. And what ends up happening here for all of my, um, how many of y'all have read the book of Daniel? All right, come on, Daniel in the lion's den? Maybe you heard of that? 
All right. Daniel and the lion's den, the southern kingdom in 2 Kings is overtaken by Babylon. Northern kingdom by Assyria, southern kingdom by Babylon. And Babylon is led by a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? Which, incidentally, Saddam Hussein saw himself as a rise, as, as another Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? And we know his story. But Nebuchadnezzar is the one who led Babylon and overthrew Judah. And Daniel, what, what Nebuchadnezzar's brilliance was, is that when he overthrew a nation, what he did was he took all the bright, beautiful, well-educated, and young, and he took them and put them in Babylon and reprogrammed their brains, their minds, okay? Had them adopt into the culture, and Daniel was one of those men. Daniel was young, fit, strong, smart, and he goes, hey, I'll use him. So he brought Daniel and uh, his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember those stories in the fiery furnace and the lion's den, all those things? But Daniel and his three friends, showed, they resolved, Daniel one, they resolved not to defile their God, defile themselves. And they chose not to eat the fruit and the food of, of the king because they were eating what was according to the law, the Mosaic law. And you probably know the story but it's, that's where Daniel fits, where you have men who are not going to bow down to the king and give in to the pressure. And so what ends up happening is he tries to, tries to kill him, and God miraculously saves him. And so Daniel is an incredible mess, book of uh, heroism and courage and faith, but also prophecy. So there's great heroic stories in the first six chapters of Daniel, and then the latter chapters of Daniel, it's about the prophecy of what's to come. So when we get to Revelation, you're going to see the fulfillment of what was promised in Daniel, but how all this is tied together. And what God does for Daniel is he gives him a glimpse of the future and how he's going to fulfill his promises to Abraham and to David. Everybody with me? It's all one book. The Bible's all one book, okay? And you got to see, you got to be able to rewind, fast forward, rewind, fast forward, okay? So um, stick with me. So we're looking at the primary historical books. We just finished 2 Kings. 2 Kings is exile, right? Now you've got God's people in what country? Babylon, okay? Led by Nebuchadnezzar, okay? Now, this is what's great. God is faithful to his promises, isn't he? And he says, in Isaiah, he offers a message of hope. And he says, through Isaiah, hey, judgment is coming, but I'm going to raise up my servant. And I just want you to read this. Okay, this is um, Isaiah 44. He says, thus says the Lord, this is written a couple hundred years before. Oh, let me read it first. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners and turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. In other words, he's saying I can do whatever I want who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, 
Okay? Jerusalem's the capital of what? Judah. Who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. In the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will say, I will dry up your rivers. You hear what he's saying? Despite your being overthrown by Babylon, I'm going to raise up this, this city again. Everybody with me? This is, this, is, this is crazy. Notice what happens. Verse 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Hello. You read that and you go, whatever just happened. What, what are you talking about? Okay. Cyrus, 200 years before he is born, Isaiah calls him by name. Who's, who's Cyrus? He is the king of Persia. The Persian pagan king is described by God as his servant. This is, this is Proverbs 21 where God says, I can turn a king's heart like rivers of water in my hand. It's nothing for me. So he uses this king as his servant and says, Persia comes along and overthrows Babylon and says, all the Jewish people can go home. And so God uses this king to allow the Jews to go home, and that is the book of Ezra, which is restoration, which is return, where we get to wave our hands and cheer like cheerleaders. Because God was faithful to his promise and has allowed the people to return home. There's three waves of deportation into Babylon, and then there's three returns home. Not everybody wanted to go home, though. Because many of them got situated in Babylon, and life became comfortable, and their kids were in good schools, and they had good jobs, right? And they kind of had forgotten about this whole thing called God and a promised land. They'd kind of figured out their ways. And when Cyrus comes and allows the people to return, Ezra, he, the book of Ezra, this, he helps restore the people. So what you have in this return is you have the temple is rebuilt by a man named Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple. Okay, you can remember that. So Zerubbabel, think about that for a good biblical name, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, say that with me, Zerubbabel. There you go. Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple. And Ezra teaches the people the law because they have forgotten the law. This is generations later. And so now God has allowed his people to return home. And here's what is so crazy, gang, is the first thing God wants them to do is rebuild the temple. You see, the next book we're going to look at after Ezra is Nehemiah. I'll get there. Nehemiah Nehemiah rebuilds the walls around Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about you, but if I just got my tail kicked... And I, my, all my people were in exile. The very first thing I would do would be, re, to, would be to rebuild the wall, not the temple. 
But what God says is, you don't need a wall. You need me. And you establish worship again. And you make me your priority again. And then he sends Ezra, and he says, and Ezra is going to teach you. And it says, Ezra 7.10, he set his heart to study the law, to teach it, I mean, and to apply it, and to teach it to, and, and to, teach it to the people. It's Ezra 7.10. It's a great model. He studied it so that he could apply it, and then he taught it. And that's our responsibility. And so now you've got the temple worship established, where that is the central part of their life. You've got a prophet who comes in and teaches the people the word of God. What do I have up here? Okay, so Ezra begins in Ezra 1, 1 through 4, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah and Isaiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. This is a pagan king, gang. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all kingdoms of earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever's among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Do you see that? You get to go home, and you get to take the best of what I have and go rebuild. And by the way, I'm king of Persia. I'm over the most powerful nations of the earth. I'm it, and I'm going to protect you. So um, this story is about providence and restoration and the people's repentance and the rebuilding of the temple. Um. You've got more notes there that you can look at. And then you get to Nehemiah, and he rebuilds the wall. And so you have the reconstruction of the walls and the restoration of the people. But he encounters difficulty, even with his own people. Right? And this is a great, great book in hope and leadership and courage. It tells of the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem and the recommitment of the return exiles under Nehemiah's leadership. It's a book of, of promise, of providence, and, or and remembrance. All right. So Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple. Ezra teaches the people the law. Nehemiah, he rebuilds the wall. There's three exiles, or three deportations, rather, and then there's three returns. Now, you, you ladies out there, you've studied Esther, okay? And I don't know if any of the gentlemen in here have studied Esther, but the ladies have studied Esther probably. Where does Esther fit? Now, look at this. You've got Ezra 1 through 6. So if you have your Bibles, after, after chapter 6, there's this 60-year gap right there, and then you've got Ezra 7 through 10, okay? And you've got a gap, and then you've got Nehemiah. All right, between Ezra 6 and 7, you insert the story of Esther. And Esther tells the story of what happens to the Jews 
who are in Persia who choose not to go home. Okay? So what happens to them? Well, you have a, a man who is intent on their genocide. And God, through this woman named Esther, this godly woman with great courage, she is exhorted by her uncle, who knows whether or not you have attained royalty for such a time as this. God's put you in this position, in this place, and he can use you. And if he doesn't use you, if you choose not to obey, that's fine. He'll use somebody else. But he's giving you influence. And she, because of her beauty, all right, was married to the Persian king. And he, she was not allowed just to walk in and um, into his presence whenever she wanted to demand something. And she was told, though, hey, if you don't do something, then the Jewish people are going to be killed. And she and the, the Persian king did not even know she was Jewish. And she went in and revealed her true nature and who she is and told, exposed, exposed the plot, okay, of the genocide that was going to um, occur. And because of her faithfulness, the Jewish people in Persia were spared. But that's where Esther fits. Okay, so Esther answers the question, what happens to the people who remained in Persia? Ezra and Nehemiah tell you the story of what happens to the people who, under Cyrus's decree, went home. Okay? That is the story of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament prophets, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, though, you need to know, you've got a people who continue to have shown themselves unfaithful in the last great covenant in the Old Testament is the new covenant. And it's here that God says, I'm about to do something that you, won't, you will never believe. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, what I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What, what, that's the Mosaic covenant. My covenant they, that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will what? I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. You see that? God's saying, you and me, we can't do this on our own. You have generations of Israelites who show they cannot do this on their own. Their hearts are hardened and stubborn, and they will, they're faithless. But God is faithful, and so he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to renew your heart. I'm going to give you a new heart. Does this language sound familiar? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the, what does it say? The new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You guys catch that? With the death of Christ, our Passover lamb, see Exodus, he inaugurated a new covenant so that those of us who trust in the blood of the lamb, 2 Corinthians 5.17, we become a new creation. 
The old is gone, the new has come. So every time you take of the bread and drink of the juice, every time you take communion, you are participating in the celebration of the new covenant, which was promised to the Jewish people in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. See, your Bible's all one book, gang. And God, through Christ, inaugurated the new covenant. Inaugurated it. But he hasn't ultimately fulfilled it. And that's for a couple of weeks from now. In between your Old Testament and your New Testament, you have 400 years of silence. We call it silence not because nothing happened, but because God did not speak prophetically. Malachi 4.6 to Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the 400 years of silence. Here's the transfer of power we've talked about. You have Assyria, then Babylon, then Persia, and then Greece. And who led Greece? man named Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great fits between your Old Testament and your New Testament. Israel has several years of independence there, and then comes Rome. All right? And with Rome on the scene, Jesus is born. And that's why people are so confused. Because when Jesus claims to be the Messiah, they think he's going to fulfill the Davidic covenant in military terms. And so you've got the zealots who are all about, is now the time you're going to usher in the kingdom? It's time to overthrow the kingdom. Simon the zealot. Who's the zealot? His philosophy was, let's draw a sword and let's kill the Romans. And they were expecting a king like that. And Jesus said, hey, I've come as a lamb to take care of your dead faithless, sinful hearts first. And then I'll return as a lion. And that's when he's going to fulfill the Abrahamic, the Davidic, and the new covenant. And it's all yet to happen. But I'm telling you, the nation of Israel was overthrown and the temple destroyed in AD 70. Okay? And they went a long time before they were given a a land again until after World War II, all of a sudden, the nation of Israel is allowed to return, and Israel exists today. It's exciting times, especially in light of biblical prophecy. So what you have here is the powers of Greece, Israel, and Rome. Greece provided under Alexander the Great, Koine Greek, common language, a universal language which everyone spoke, which allowed for the ease of communication Israel was waiting on this um, messianic hope and this, this long-expected one, this, the king to, to be born. And Rome provided Pax Ramona, the peace of Rome, because they were, um, they were the dominant uh, ones of the age. They had roads, okay? And so there was ease of travel. And when you have all of that, you have this incredible just coming together of world history upon which Jesus is born and the gospel is able to flourish. Genesis 4.4, or Galatians rather, Galatians 4.4 says, but when the fullness of time had come. What does that mean? Fullness of time. That means exactly when God had wanted and orchestrated for the savior of the world to be born, he was born at the right time. 
All of world history comes on this point. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to what? To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So that you and I could be a part of Abraham's family, children of faith. And because you were sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts saying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Gang, that, that's just, I know you're tired, but you just got to stop and think about that. All right? You, you got to understand that throughout history, I don't care what you hear on the news, what you see in the newspapers, what you hear from your friends at work, okay? You got to know that God preserved his story in a book. And it's all one book. It's inspired by him, compiled by him, preserved by him, so that you could have a message of hope. And you could know that God loves you. And that history is not on this random course of natural law and Darwinian thought and all that crudola. It's nonsense. There's a supreme, sovereign God who spoke this earth into existence, a creator who made you in his image. And you and I rebelled against him. We turned our back against him. Even when we were faithless, though, God remained faithful. And he had a rescue mission planned all the way back in the garden when he said that in Genesis 3.15 that he was going to provide the one who was going to come and the snake was going to strike him in the heel, but his son was going to crush his head. And that's what happened at the cross. And everything in the Old Testament points to the coming of Jesus Christ. Everything. And everything in the New looks back to his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and anticipates his return. Everything. And when you start now to go to the New Testament, and we start putting all this together, I'm just telling you, it's all one book. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. you got one book. And it's going to start to turn in color in ways. Now, if you just have a basic understanding of the Old Testament, when you get to the New Testament, you're going to go, oh, my goodness. And then you're going to sit there and look at all the prophecies of the Old, and you look at the New, and you're not going to have this nonsensical thinking that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Eh, that's wrong. It's one God, one story, one rescue mission because he loves you and me. I don't know how you don't tell people that. We got to. We got to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your, your book. I thank you for telling us the truth. I pray that you forgive us when we buy in the lies, Lord, which is where people that are prone to want are prone to leave the God we love. And um, I pray, Father, that Oh, you would just um, inform our hearts. You would help us to walk by faith because we know, Lord, without faith, it's impossible to please you. I thank you, Lord, that you remain faithful even when we remain faithless. I thank you that your grace, we can never outspend your grace. We can never outdo your love. And um, I pray, Father, we would just marvel tonight as we go home, as we just think about this world which is spinning out of control and all the chaos we read and see and hear about. I, I just pray, Father, we just take great comfort 
Psalm 2, that our God's on his throne. And nothing surprises you. Nothing scares you. But you're taking all the world events, the course of history, and orchestrating it according to your divine sovereign plan for your purposes and our good. I pray, Lord, you'd help us to invest in what's eternal and not temporal. I pray, Lord, you would show us the things in our lives which need to change. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be more wedded to yours. Help us to fall in love with you and to know your mind through understanding your book. In Christ's name, amen.